Some of you here this morning uh, no doubt have stories similar to the one that, that Diana shared. And so you, you grew up hearing Bible stories from parents and friends and teachers. And so uh, you, you know who Paul and Luke and Timothy are. And you know how to find the book of Acts in your Bible. And, <laughs> and, you, uh, and you probably maybe even know those songs that we just sung moments ago. But some of you here today may have no idea or little idea what Diana was talking about. Maybe you've never heard a Bible story, or maybe you have heard a few, but if you're honest with yourself, you don't know the difference between Noah's Ark and Joan of Ark. And as far as you're concerned, perhaps Paul and Luke and Timothy are the people who are standing over there handing you bulletins when you arrive today. And so all of this that you're experiencing, even this morning so far, is feeling pretty weird. If that's you, first off, thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us. Though you may not realize it yet, our God has brought you here this morning because he has something he wants you to hear. But I also want you to know that I admire you because It takes a certain bravery and humility to come and check out a group like this. Especially if you don't already know all the steps to the dance, so to speak. But this is a great day for you to be here. A great day for you to visit. Because we are going to be talking about the ancient city of Athens. And about how a man named Paul shares about the hope he has in God with the people there who would likewise have absolutely no idea what he was talking about. But for some, what they heard that day absolutely transformed their lives. And it just might for you today as well. So let's read together Luke's account in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is uh, his friends, at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. All right, we'll pause there. As Luke observes in verse 21, Athens was the place to be for those who were interested in all the latest and exciting news and ideas. And this was so well known that 2,000 years later, my guess is that many of us still have some familiarity with, with people who lived in Athens around this time period. We've heard about and perhaps personally studied the philosophies of men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno all of whom who lived in Athens at at one point or another. Everything about the culture there encouraged philosophers to publicly debate their ideas in search of purpose and truth and ethics. 
in many ways, Athens was like a modern university, or perhaps a modern university town. And as Paul wandered around the city, Luke tells us in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Other translations say that Paul was greatly distressed or upset at what he saw. Why? Because the city was full of idols, false gods, both in their form and in ideology, idols represented an affront to God. Yet Paul did not run away, shaking the dust off his cloak as he went. No, like his Savior Jesus, he entered wholeheartedly into that sin-saturated environment that so distressed him, and out of compassion for the people there, he engages with them and reasons with them, both in the Jewish synagogues and in the marketplaces. Now, did the Athenians appreciate Paul's compassion and reason despite how clearly uncomfortable he must have been? Well, let's see. Verse 18 tells us that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers spoke with them, spoke with him, and they said, what reasonable arguments this man is making. Let's politely and carefully examine his claims over some Athenian tea, shall we? No! No, that's not at all what they said. They said, what does this babbler wish to say? Listen, friends, that's not an actual question. That's a statement. That's an accusation or a dismissal. In fact, the Greek there for that word babbler, it's literally translated to seed picker. The image is that of a little bird darting about the marketplace, picking up the scraps of knowledge that were just discarded and left on the ground because of how useless they were. It's a derogatory term meant to convey that Paul was guilty of the most despicable of Athenian crimes, that of being unreasonable and hackish in his philosophies. Still, despite the mocking, some of these Athenians caught on just enough to what Paul was saying, thinking it was something about foreign divinities, which surely sounded like something new and exciting, I'm sure, that, that they invited Paul to come share more. Now, Luke confirms for us in verse 18, lest we worry, that of course, of course, Paul was not simply preaching foreign divinities, and it's such that the, the polytheistic Athenians here could add to their collection of other gods and idols and, and so on. Rather, Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the text here suggests that the Athenians had so little idea of what Paul was talking about that when they heard that term, the resurrection, it probably just sounded like another God's name to them. So they had Zeus and Hera, they had Ares and Aphrodite, and they had Jesus and Anastasi, which is which is the, the word for resurrection in Greek. So it sounded like Jesus had a girlfriend, and these were new foreign divinities that Paul was introducing. That's why the people there said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, plural. That's how confused these people likely were. So how, with so much confusion could Paul possibly help these people understand? Because, because up to this point, Paul's standard technique, as recorded again and again by our author Luke, was that Paul would reason from the Jewish scriptures in the Jewish synagogues, speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. These people would already know 
the words and the songs and the dance that Paul was leading them in, right? And occasionally, yes, some devout Greeks who had done the hard work of enculturating themselves to a Jewish lifestyle and language were, of course, free to listen in and understand and, by God's grace, even be accepted by God through Paul's message of salvation through Jesus. But friends, that's not going to fly here. This, this is Athens. This is no little country church, okay, where, where, where everybody knows everybody and everybody's kids marry everybody else's kids for generation after generation after generation. No, this is Athens. This is the home to great poets like Homer and Sophocles. It's home to brilliant minds like Pythagoras and Socrates. It's home to wise leaders like Pericles and thoughtful historians like Thucydides and eloquent orators like Demosthenes. And Athens, Athens is home to innumerable idols and altars to Zeus and Hera and Poseidon and Apollo and every god and goddess that has ever set foot on Mount Olympus. So, What should Athens, great Athens, have to do with this strange Jew and his minority, monotheistic, religious nonsense? Bah! Seed picker! In such a context as that, how can Paul share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with such a people as this? Well, what we're about to read is Paul's masterful and instructive example on how to share the gospel message in a compelling, contextualized, and Christ-centered manner, even with an audience with absolutely no Judeo-Christian background. And he does so in four basic points. God, man, sin, and Christ. God, man, sin, and Christ. We're going to look at these one at a time. All right, so let me read for us, picking up where we left off at verse 22. We're going to read through verse 25. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul begins, friends, by going right for the heart of Athenian culture. In essence, his message begins with, I know something you don't know. And he teases them with that. Would there be anything more compelling to the Athenian audience than that? See, in God's, in God's provision, providence, Paul had earlier noted an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. And Paul is wisely using this as a stepping stone into the Athenian worldview. Now, now please understand, Paul is not suggesting that, hey, 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 I have a God too, 
and he deserves to have a seat up there with Zeus and Hera and all them. And this is evident because Paul does not say, what therefore you worship is unknown, him I proclaim to you. No, what does he say? What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul isn't adding a God, rather he's addressing their ignorance. This unknownness, let me tell you what that is. Listen, all you wise philosophers, you yourself recognize that you're missing something. That's what Paul's saying. You're missing something important in your religion, in your thinking, in your lives. And I'm going to tell you right now what that is. And so he does. Verse 24. There is one God who made everything and so is Lord over all heaven and earth. So Paul is saying, see this whole pantheon of gods? You're actually wrong about that. I'm sorry, but that's not right. There's just one God. Now, now, no doubt, surely, some of his listeners at that very moment would have, would, would have been lost. They, it would have invited more cries of seed picker. But Paul's not interested in watering down truth just to keep his audience. And so he continues undaunted with that premise established. This God, Paul says, doesn't need things. He doesn't need things. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need temples. He doesn't need our service. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Just think about this. Why would the one who created everything, including our very lives and the breath within us, need something from us? Greek gods were needy and insecure and unstable and limited. Paul's God is none of those things. He doesn't have limits and he doesn't have needs. And why would he if he really is the one creator God? Now, among the many thoughtful onlookers in Paul's audience there, surely some of them began nodding their heads. Like, that, that has a certain logic to it. This, this seed picker maybe found an actual morsel of truth in some of this. And so with the nature of God now established... Paul moves on to the next component of his gospel message, which is the nature of man. So let's read verses 26 through 28. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. In verse 26, Paul shares that this one God then made from that one man every nation, every, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And all those peoples throughout this entire world Paul says, have this one thing in common. That God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That is, all of Paul's audience and all of us today are exactly, exactly when and where God intended. Friends, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty and goodness and grace, our God has placed you 
personally right here, right now, at Grace Fellowship Church in State College, Pennsylvania, this morning, sitting on this grass. And you, friends, on Zoom, God, you, you aren't... Maybe you think of like, well, I, I can't be there. I'm not there this morning because of, of sickness, because of COVID, because of distancing, whatever it might be. But, but Paul is saying, no, you are perfectly placed right there on purpose by God personally. You're right where he wants you to be. And if you're listening to this recording, like a thousand years in the future, like God has placed you right there as well. It's just as true for you, future friend, as it is for the rest of us here this morning and those of us joining us on Zoom. And without doubt, a thousand years from now, by then, Grace Fellowship Church and State College and America probably have been long forgotten. But you haven't. You haven't been forgotten. Our God has personally placed you exactly where he intends. Why? Why? Why are, are we here this morning? Why are you there on Zoom this morning? Why is, why is our community and our country and our world right here, right now? Verse 27 tells us why. Look, that you should seek God and perhaps feel your way toward him and find him. That's the reason, friends. God put you here. God put you there so that we'd find him. That's why those Athenians were in that place on that day. They thought they were going to the marketplace that morning for groceries. But God intended that they come back with him. And friends, that's why you're here too. Whether you've been here to Grace Fellowship a hundred times or ten times, or this is your first time. God personally and purposefully put you here because God wants you to feel your way toward him. Now, now I confess that is not normally the way that we talk about what it, how someone comes to know God. But, but picture this for a moment. How, how would you feel your way towards someone or something that you could not see? It would look like this, right? Like you're feeling about and you're, 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 when you find something, you, you test it. You see, is this what I'm looking for? I can't see it. And then if it's not, you put it down and you try something else and you go feeling about. I'm going to knock stuff over here if I'm not careful. But like that, that's, that's the image that we have here. And, and, and that sure sounds like Athenian culture, doesn't it? Now, look again at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. They're doing this. They're feeling around. They're trying to test everything. They're like, is this, is this new thing going to satisfy me? That's why they're doing this. They're testing. They're hoping. They're rejecting. Because it's not quite right. And our culture is doing the same thing, isn't it? And if someone is listening to this in the future, a thousand years from, you know, from now, I, I imagine that 3021 is not any different. You're doing the same thing. It's exhausting. It's hard. 
It's confusing. It's frustrating. Your, your hopes go up. Every time you grab something, you're like, oh, is this it? Is this what I've been looking for? No, not again. And you don't want to even try, but you have nothing else. Where else are you going to go? So you, you keep feeling about. In Athens and in State College and wherever else, we can spend our entire lives doing this. And it never works. But listen to what Paul says in verse 27. God is actually not far from each one of us. Friends, we've been feeling about endlessly. And we didn't even know what we were looking for. But now we do. And the God we're looking for, that we were made to look for, that we were made to find, is actually not far away. He's not far at all. Somehow, the we and the Athenians and all humankind are dispersed across all time and space. God is still not far from each of us. No human, no human philosophy can make such a claim as that. But our God can. Our God, who is no longer unknown. Now, that's not the whole story. And Paul isn't going to pull any punches here, because while God is, in fact, very much nearby... That's not, at first, a good thing. Because before we can be accepted by God, we first have to deal with what the Bible calls sin. And that's the next point in Paul's message and on your outline. Let me read verses 29 and 30. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, in verse 29, Paul notes that it's really quite inconsistent to recognize that we are God's offspring, having been created by him, while also thinking that we can create him in the form of really pretty rocks. Yet the city, we were told in verse 16, remember, was full of this kind of thinking. Idols were everywhere, formed by the art and the imagination of man. Paul is asking, who created whom here, O Athenians? In our modern context, this, this, this can, there's often this sense of religiosity, right? Like belief in some divine being or, or some om, omnipotent or, or omniscient anyway, uh, d- loving entity, some vague, benevolent God who's working everything together for your good. Do you think you can manipulate him into doing what you want? Who, who is actually God, O oh, residents of State College? It's ridiculous to think that way. And, and Paul calls this out plainly in verse 30. Look at this. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Listen, just as you might get out of a parking ticket via an honest mistake and a merciful authority, 
God has likewise mercifully overlooked your theological ignorance to this point. But a merciful judge is still a judge. And cries of mercy will, will fall on willfully deaf ears when you get your 10th or your 100th parking ticket. Right? Some of you are nodding at that, and I'm a little scared. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Yet, but how many tens of thousands of tickets have we all already been written up for? Maybe you didn't even know, but they're charged to your account, and you are in great debt. My friends, whether Jew or Athenian or State College, Native or wherever you're from, you have a really big problem, and you can no longer claim ignorance. God has revealed himself to you. God's nature has been made plain to you. God's word has been declared to you. And this God commands that all people everywhere, including you, repent. So turn from your ignorance. Acknowledge who God is. Acknowledge who you are. Acknowledge that you have lived in ignorance creating innumerable idols in your lives, whether of stone or of sex or of money or of power or intelligence or whatever else. The Bible calls that sin. And turning from it is absolutely necessary. And verse 31 tells us why. Look, verse 31. Because... God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By a man whom he has appointed. And how can we know that this will happen? He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the situation, friends. A day is coming, and it may or may not happen by 3021, I guess we'll see, in which God will judge the world in righteousness. That day, we're told here, is as fixed as the times and the places in which Paul's audience and us today find ourselves now living. This day is coming. The clock is ticking. We can't see the hands of the clock. We don't know how much time we have left, but it is certainly coming. What we do know is that God's appointed man is coming to judge. And we can know who he is, this text tells us, because God raised him from the dead. Just last week, I had friend, uh, I had breakfast with a friend of mine who isn't a Christian. And at one point, the conversation turned to spiritual things. And I asked him what he thought of the resurrection of Jesus. And he told me honestly, quote, I'm leaning against believing it happened. So I asked him why. And he said, listen, because people don't rise from the dead. Indeed, they don't. An excellent point, friend. The, the Athenian listeners that, that we have here, like, they, they would be nodding enthusiastically at such a clear and rational statement by my friend. But, this is what I said to him, because it doesn't happen, because resurrection just doesn't happen, and in fact couldn't happen, apart from a clear, purposeful, plain-as-day miracle, 
wouldn't resurrection therefore serve with absolute clarity as proof that that individual and none other across all the world, across all time, and all in every direction you can think of, wouldn't resurrection serve as a proof that that is God's appointed one? Think about it. If you were God, and you had to pinpoint just one person across all time and space, wouldn't raising him from the dead serve as an absolutely perfect means of identifying him? Friends, I declare to you today that that is exactly what God did. And that man who rose from the dead, we know, is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one promised in the Jewish scriptures who is called the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is God's chosen one. And 2,000 years ago, he took our sin and all our rebellion and all our ignorance upon himself when he died on a Roman cross. And in exchange, he gave us his perfections and his righteousness. And so on that day that God is fixed, God will, in fact, judge the world in righteousness. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, in who he is and what he did, then, then the judgment rendered to us will be based on Jesus' righteousness, not our own. We will not only escape the condemnation that should be ours, but the judge himself will then treat us as his beloved children. And moreover, he promises that, that like Jesus, we too will be resurrected to everlasting life. That is the message that, that led Diana to, to celebrate when she was a little girl and why we all celebrate and sing every Sunday and throughout the week here at Grace Fellowship Church. That's what we are feeling our way toward, friends. When we're going like this, that's what we're looking for. Across all time, all people across all the earth are looking for Jesus. And he's not actually far from any of us. And so let's read how the Athenians responded to this incredible truth. Look at verses 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You know, honestly, it, at first, it seems like nothing has actually changed since the marketplace, right? We, we still see that some are mocking and some have interest in hearing more. Did anything change after this great sermon? Thankfully, yes. Some men joined Paul and believed including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So let's reason together, shall we? Why were Dionysius and Damaris there that day? Verse 26. God put them in just that place at just that time. What did Dionysius and Damaris do as a result? 
Verse 27. They sought God, feeling their way toward him, and they found him. How did Dionysius and Damaris respond to finding him? Verse 30. They obeyed his command to repent. And how is all of that even possible? Through the mercy and grace of God's appointed Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, friends, we have seen over and over again that God's kingdom grows against all odds into the likeness of the resurrected Christ. That has been our theme. That has been our refrain. And today, here in Athens, among a bunch of ignorant religious polytheists with their sophisticated philosophies and constant drive to find whatever is new, God's kingdom grew against all odds into the image of the resurrected Christ. So, how does this apply to us here today in state or in center county? We'll be broad. Here are three brief applications. Number one, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Whether you have Diana's spiritual background or Athens' spiritual background or no spiritual background, now you know who God is, who you are, what sin is, and who Christ is. No, you don't know it all fully. Maybe today's the first day you've heard that, but take heart, none of us here know it all fully. But you and I both know enough now to feel our way toward God, to find him, to repent, and to trust in Jesus Christ. He is not far from you. And, and if you feel like you're stuck right now in that, in that feeling about, or, or, or maybe this morning for the first time you think you may have actually found him, you, you've, you've grabbed hold of something that feels more solid. And it, and it resonates. You, you, you're like, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. Then, then please come talk to me afterwards or share it afterwards with someone in your small group. We'd like to, to walk with you and welcome you into the kingdom of Christ. That is your first application. Your second application this morning, friends, uh, is to recall Paul's model. Recall Paul's model. His model here in Athens can be just as effective uh, today as it was then. Simply share those four points. God, man, sin, Christ. Some people know some of that. Some may even know all of that. But no matter who you're talking to, start by asking yourself questions like, what, what part of that does it seem like they don't know? What don't they know? What do they know? And, and how can I connect the dots for them? Paul saw that the Athenians were religious. And some of that is good. So he'll, he'll, he'll use that to connect the dots. Paul saw that their own idols had, had unknown written on them. So that, that's great. He'll use that to connect the dots too. We didn't talk about it, but there in the text, Paul even quotes some of their own poets. He's like, yeah, they, they don't have a, they, they don't have this all together. But he took the part that was good and he builds on it and he connects the dots for them. God, man, sin, Christ. And so later today, perhaps, you'll be, you'll be uh, outside, it's really nice out today, and so you might be talking to a friend or neighbor. Ask yourself, what do they know? 
maybe they maybe they know that there's a right and wrong. Maybe they're sharing about something that happened at work or in their family, and they're saying that was just wrong. Use that. That's great. God put that in there. Use it. What you can ask them. What determines right or wrong? How do you know that? Tell me. I'm I'm curious. Then share that the God who created heaven and earth actually tells us what's right and wrong. Or maybe they believe in some nondescript divine power. That's pretty common. That's great. God put that there. Use it. What, what do you know about God? Would you tell me more? Tell me what you believe. Tell me about your God. And then share that the God who created heaven and earth actually tells us who he is. We can know him. And then just fill in the parts they don't know. Tell them about God. Tell them who we are. Tell them what sin is and tell them who Jesus is. I, I love walking with people through that process. It's one of my favorite things in the world. And I know that's, that's, that's true for a lot of us here today. And so we, we'd love to talk to you about how you can have a conversation about God, man, sin, and Christ. So again, come talk to me afterwards or talk in your small group about your questions. Finally, last application. Rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. And I include this because that last application, perhaps about sharing with others, may sound really scary to you. Especially if you're not used to doing that. You've never done it before, or it's always difficult. Perhaps you feel like you can't connect those dots very well. At least not not thinking on your feet. You're not very quick about it. Or, or you don't know how to do it without sounding incredibly awkward. Don't fret over it, guys. It's okay to try and to fail and to try again. My, my friend that I had breakfast with, he did not accept Christ there on the spot, but he was open to reading more things together and talking further. That's okay. It's okay to try. Because we don't know, friends, who Christ will save or when. We don't, and we don't have to. Just, just tell whomever will list, they'll listen, even if they're mocking you. Paul did. Listen, guys, God put them there. In that spot, at that time. Why? So that you could talk with them. That they might feel their way toward God. God wants them to hear from you and be saved. That was Paul's story. That was your story, whether you didn't even know it when you showed up today. The pressure isn't on you, friends. It's on God. So rest in his sovereignty. He's the one who will give you the wisdom and the words that they might be saved. He'll connect the dots even when you can't. He'll rescue the modern day Dionysius and Damaris. He's got this, friends. He'll handle it personally because he's not far from any of us. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning. And for those those who might be hearing this even in the future, if you should see fit to do that, God, we pray that they would have found you even in these past 40 minutes. God, I pray that if there are people here this morning or listening in the future who don't yet know you, they're still grasping about, God, would you soften their hearts? Show them who you are. Tell them in your word who they are. Bring friends into their lives that can explain to them what sin is. And God, would you lead them to repent? Everything that they're looking for. Everything that some of us here have found, like Diana shared, this is what we've been wanting our whole lives. Would you cause us to feel our way towards you and find you and to grab hold and never let go? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.